As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Okay, Mike, I want you to imagine a scenario here. All right. I am listing. I am getting ready to imagine. <laughs> Close your eyes, right? Imagine walking into your local grocery store and seeing two virtually identical boxes of cereal. The only discernible difference, and it's barely discernible, is that there's a tiny marking on one of the boxes that says the cereal is sold by a third-party seller. Huh. Interesting. Okay. And it might have rat poison in it. Okay. Well, this this reminds me of what it's like shopping on Amazon for most things. I don't know if you're going there with this, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You nailed it, right? It is exactly what is happening when people are buying goods on Amazon today. It's nearly impossible for them to police this vast third-party network of sellers that they created. And so we, the customer are stuck with the risk. Yeah, I, I wonder why there was this chair that my wife bought on Amazon, and when it arrived, it was about, um, I don't know, six inches tall. <laughs> I, you know, when, thinking back on it, I was like, gosh, you know, where'd you get this from? And she's like, I thought it was supposed to be, you know, big enough for us to go camping with. And you go back, it was, the Amazon page looked nor, you know, looked like they're just marketing a regular chair, but yeah, with one big catch. Yep. Yep. We bought things like Mario figurines for the kids or Pokemon cards, right? And they've all turned out to be fake. But there's another side to this market, which is absolutely fascinating to watch. And that is? The Sanjai brands or knockoff brands that have been developed in China and sometimes even surpass their corporate counterparts in terms of quality and innovation. So this is what we're going to be exploring today, how Amazon and other e-commerce platforms have broken down trust with consumers buying online by allowing fake goods to be sold as the real product for the same price as the real product, and how these same methods of creating fake goods have created their own consumer market ripe with innovation and creativity. All right, season 11 of Antitrust, getting into the final stretch. Let's get into it. 
Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. Now, if I'm being honest, I put this episode together solely to talk about Sanjay, but I realize everyone is here because we've all experienced buying or almost buying fake products on Amazon. Yeah, well, I can definitely relate. I, I now have to scour the reviews before making a purchase just to make sure that the product is actually legitimate. And even the reviews, I mean, those could be tough to figure out which ones are legit and which ones are sort of just been used to game the system. Yep, yep. And that's because it's estimated that over $1.4 billion worth of fake goods enter the United States each year. And that is up 10x from just a decade ago. And there's almost nothing that can actually be done to stop it, it seems. Here's a clip from a CNBC News segment on the topic. The Chinese counterfeiters pop up so fast, the moment you take them down, another one pops up. The rise of e-commerce has fueled counterfeiting around the world. Amazon said it blocked more than 3 billion suspected fake listings from its marketplace in 2018. International e-commerce sellers must step up and do more. The economic cost of counterfeiting is mounting. The OECD says fake goods account for more than 3% of all global trade, while some estimate the sale of illicit products could result in more than 5.4 million net job losses worldwide by 2022. It's crazy that Amazon claims to have blocked three billion in counterfeit products, and it's still a rampant problem on the site. And there's a difference between buying like a fake Rolex off the street for twenty dollars and buying what you think is, say, like a Mac makeup kit at full price, only to find out that the product isn't quite the quality you expected. Yeah, I remember seeing a documentary on exactly that, and they have all types of harmful chemicals. Sometimes it's. It's not even that the quality isn't the same, but the products can actually be harmful. Totally. Here's a clip from a Refinery29 documentary about what has been found in these products and the conditions with which they are made. Actually, what's inside is very different. The FBI reports that counterfeit cosmetics have been found to contain dangerous levels of bacteria, and reported reactions include acne, psoriasis, serious skin rashes, and eye infections. What's more, these reactions can take days to show up which means the counterfeit products don't always get the blame they deserve. Estee Lauder seized over 2.6 million counterfeit Mac products in 2016 alone. Back in New York, we met with the man in charge of its global security team. What does the dark underbelly of this look like? I traveled to, uh, to China, to Guangzhou, a couple of years ago, and uh, my team took me around to some of the locations where these products are made, and uh, it, it's just unsanitary conditions. I mean, there's no quality control. There's no, well, this doesn't right meet the test. Let's take it off the line. You wouldn't eat there, let alone uh, make products there for distribution. Yeah, that is scary. And these are completely unregulated, too. And they've mastered the branding. So it's incredibly hard to tell that they are fake from the outside. Carmen, my, my wife, she worked at Mac for a while, and people would bring in these products, trying to return them or complain about them. Mac had to put out very detailed and consistently updated descriptions of what to look for so their staff could explain to the people that they actually bought a fake good and not a certified Mac product. All right, so how did we get here? Well, most people don't realize this, but the majority of listings on Amazon, they're not actually items sold by Amazon. They're run by third-party sellers, and even though many, many third-party sellers are upstanding merchants, 
there are a lot of bad ones too. A major Wall Street Journal investigation recently revealed that Amazon has listed thousands of banned, unsafe, or mislabeled products from dangerous children's products to electronics with fake certifications. The Verge actually reported that even Amazon's listings for its own line of goods are getting hijacked by imposter sellers. CNBC has found that Amazon's shipped expired foods, including baby formula, to customers, uh, pointing to an inability to monitor something as basic as an expiration date. Because of the proliferation of counterfeits and what Birkenstock describes as Amazon's unwillingness to help fight them, Birkenstock won't sell on Amazon anymore, and neither will brands like Nike. A January 2020 Department of Homeland Security report stated that many consumers are unaware of the significant probabilities they face of being defrauded by counterfeiters when they shop on e-commerce platforms. These probabilities are unacceptably high and appear to be rising. The Ovglove is another example. It's a high-quality oven mitt that protects your hands even at very, very high temperatures. And you can buy one off Amazon using Amazon Prime that is a knockoff and doesn't actually protect you from getting burned. And several customers have actually been burned from buying these knockoffs unbeknownst to them that it wasn't the real product. But because there are rarely consequences for selling fake goods beyond a seller disappearing from a website, that seller can just reestablish its presence and continue to move its inventory. And third-party sellers now dominate Amazon sales, accounting for over 54% of the units sold on Amazon. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos told shareholders in 2019 that third-party sellers are kicking our first-party butt. And he called the increase from 3% in sales in 2000 to over half today remarkable. Annual third-party sales have grown to a whopping $160 billion for them. So they're not going to try that hard to regulate this because they're making a lot of money off of these third-party sellers. And it's obviously not a painful enough problem for them to fix. Unless they're forced to. The lawsuit that could change how Amazon does business with third-party sellers after a quick break. So before the break, we were discussing Amazon's counterfeit goods problem and how they're slowly losing trust with consumers who are being forced to either take on the risk of buying an unsafe counterfeit good or spend hours reading reviews to attempt to triangulate the truth. And in all fairness, this isn't limited to Amazon. Other marketplaces who have opened up third-party seller abilities, such as Walmart, also face similar issues. But there is one lawsuit that could change all of this. Plaintiff and Texas resident Morgan McMillan a mother whose 19-month-old daughter swallowed a battery to remote control purchased on Amazon from a seller called USA Shopping 7693. Well, the baby was severely injured, but the Chinese-based seller or company couldn't even be found. McMillan sued Amazon in Texas, even though the company has argued that it isn't technically the merchant for the remote. And Texas isn't the only state where Amazon has been sued over allegedly defective products sold on its website. In California, an appellate court ruled last August that a woman who was burned by a defective Chinese laptop battery sold by the Fulfilled by Amazon program could actually hold Amazon liable. Legislators in California have also provided a new bill, AB 1182, that would clarify when electronic retailers can be held accountable for defective products, although the debate on the measure is still in the early stages. But back to the Amazon versus McMillan trial. It went to the Texas Supreme Court in October of this year and here's actually a clip from the opening arguments, which happened over Zoom. The clerk will open the court. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. The Honorable, the Supreme Court of Texas. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of Texas, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. 
God save the state of Texas, this honorable court. We will hear argument this morning in 2979, uh, Amazon.com against Macmillan, a certified question from the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Amazon argued that they aren't liable for the products that are sold and are instead liable for the experience or the platform only. Here's an exchange between Amazon's lawyer, Brendan Murphy, and Justice Eva Guzman, and then Justice Deborah Lehrman. May I ask you about um, the, the, you know, the, the facilita facilitator comment that you just um, made? Does it depend on the amount of control? Like, it seems that Amazon controls what products it sells, what vendors it will deal with, uh, communications with customers. There's a lot of control exerted there. And I think you even, um, if a seller doesn't uh, comply with um, your your BSA, you, you expel them. So why wouldn't that inquiry include a, a more nuanced approach? The answer, uh, Your Honor, is that the control Amazon exercises is over the service it provides. And if we focus on control over a service, that is an incredibly broad concept that sweeps in everybody. I mean, the Postal Service decides that certain things are not allowed to be sent through its service. And uh, the real focus is actually on control over the specific product that we're talking about. And that leads me back into what are the specific liability generating actions? And that does focus on control of the product. If we look at the results in the case law, the entities who are liable are those that grab the product from somebody upstream from them, make it their own, have a property interest, whether it's ownership um, uh, or, or a lease they're gonna transfer down, and they, they put a price on it, they offer it for sale. So the irreducible minimum of what constitutes placing in the stream of commerce is actually selecting the specific product that's Mr. gonna be sold. Murphy, Mr. Murphy, if you uh, succeed in your argument, isn't the result that a lot of people who purchase things through Amazon are gonna be lost without a remedy because it's gonna be impossible for them to know who the actual manufacturer was. Amazon is the only person that they really are dealing with as far as they know what's going on. And so for that, and in, because of that, they can basically be selling junk and have no responsibility to figure it out. Much different than an auctioneer in Texas auto auction, uh, which dealt with a completely different situation than that which we are dealing with in the 21st century. And then Jeffrey Meyerson argued the case for McMillan. May it please the court and good morning. Fulfillment by Amazon, that's what's in this certified question. And I noticed that Amazon did not once say that term. Fulfillment by Amazon is a unique business plan by Amazon. Now, they're here today claiming they're immune from selling dangerous products in Texas because they're not a seller. And yet, under Fulfillment by Amazon, they're performing every single function that a seller performs. All the supplier has to do is get their product to the shelf. And then they sit back and wait for the check. Amazon does the rest. And they talk a lot in their brief about, hey, we just provide a service. Mr. Gardner did not buy a service. He bought a remote. He just bought a product. I want to bring up three points real quick. At number one, under Chapter 82 in 402A, there is no distinction between strolling down a regular store aisle or scrolling online. And so if we take Mr. Gardner, 
going into Target, and instead of doing a virtual shopping cart, he takes a real shopping cart, he puts his remote in it, goes up to the cashier, he pays, he gets his receipt, puts it in a bag, goes to the car. There's no doubt that Target was a seller in that circumstance. The only difference is that in that case, there's four walls and title. And yet the, the law doesn't require four walls. I mean, it can be inside or outside, and title is not required under Texas law. A compelling argument. If you went to Target, they would be liable for the goods they sell you. But online, you're simply not. And here, Justice Eva Guzman seems to allude to a hole in McMillan's argument. However, I'm not sure how this distinction would help to protect consumers who now have less access to the products they're buying. In a regular store, a customer has access to the product. You can pick up the product. You can look at it. You can, um, you know, talk to the store manager about it. Uh, Customers have no access to, to the warehouse. And in drawing these lines, is that a significance that should matter? They're they're relying on whatever the the actual original seller, whether or not we decide Amazon's a seller, the actual seller puts on the website about it. That's a little different, isn't it? And does that matter? Well, it's, it's the modern way of shopping, Your Honor. And, and I agree, it's nicer to grab a product and, and look at it, but it's not in the statute that you're required to be able to you know, physically hold an object before purchasing in order to be a seller. Yeah, it's a bit of odd framing, but 30 minutes later, the arguments wrap. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. The case is submitted, and the clerk will adjourn the court. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. The Honorable, the Supreme Court of Texas, now stands adjourned. So what did they decide? Oh, no. Are we going to do one of those, like, you'll have to find out after this break? Are we doing that? (laughs) I don't know. Should we? Uh, I think we could spare another minute to wrap up this part of the story for everybody's benefit. (laughs) Fine, fine. So the judgment came down from the Texas Supreme Court. In a 5-2 to decision, the court found that Amazon cannot be held liable for goods sold on its site. Oh, that is pretty disappointing. Yeah, Justice Brett Busby, writing for the majority, found that the Texas Liability Act's definition of seller does not extend to Amazon in the extent of third-party products. The law defines a seller as a person who's engaged in the business of distributing or otherwise placing for any commercial purpose in the stream of commerce for use or consumption a product or any component part thereof. He went on to write that the court had previously recognized certain non-sale transactions, such as leasing, as giving rise to liability, but refused to extend liability to all persons or entities involved in the distribution chain. In summary, they concluded that when a product-related injury arises from a transaction involving a sale, sellers are those who have relinquished title to the allegedly defective product at some point as he wrote in his decision. But Justice Jeffrey Boyd dissented, joined by Justice John Devine. He wrote that using the common ordinary meanings of the words in the Texas statute, Amazon was unquestionably a seller of products sold through fulfillment by Amazon, since it completely controls the transaction once a product is in its warehouse. The frustrating part is because Amazon is not liable, no one really is, unless McMillan was to go to China, find the company, and somehow work through their legal system, there's no recourse. And thus, the system of trust is broken. Well, as the saying goes, caveat emptor. Who Who's saying is that? <laughs> it's Latin. It's Latin. It means let the buyer beware. All right, then. Well, we'll be back with one last segment on counterfeit goods, where we'll focus on the Sanjai market in China and this vibrant counterfeit goods culture that has emerged. 
So before the break, we were discussing the Amazon versus Macmillan case that could have placed at least some accountability on Amazon to clean up its third-party sellers that are increasingly selling fake, low-quality, and counterfeit goods on the site, eroding the trust of consumers who are slowly catching on. But not all counterfeit is bad counterfeit. There is a movement in China called Sanjai that is built on top of counterfeit goods. Sanjai is a Chinese neologism that means fake, originally coined to describe knockoff cell phones marketed under such names as Nokur and Samsung. Sanjai mobile phones started their life around 15 years ago as forgeries of famous brands such as Nokia and Samsung, but they looked exactly the same and were sold at half or third or even less of the price of the branded product under names that reminded everybody of the original. The ecosystem grew rapidly and by 2010, it was producing 200 million phones annually and was responsible for a quarter of the global mobile phone market. In order to deal with this intense competition, Sanjai phone producers made many innovations. Sanjai mobile phones had at least two SIM cards at times. Uh, this may not have been an award-winning design, but it effectively addressed the needs of Chinese consumers who often use an additional local number when they travel. So they picked up on this and added it into the design. This was one of the early innovations that the Sanjai market produced faster than the original companies. Then mobile phones started popping up with loud music speakers terrestrial television, even a telescopic lens attached on the camera. One of them could also recognize fake money. Due to all those inventions, Senjai phones were simply not forgeries anymore in terms of functions and designs. They were hardly inferior to the originals. And with all the talk of Open Web 3, where everything is portable, this feels like a peek into our future, a world where everything is remixed and ideas are built on top of each other seamlessly without the worry of copyright infringement. It reminds me, we should probably discuss the NFT crypto punks, which just sued a Senjai-esque artist for copying the likes of the original. Yeah, it's definitely like two worlds colliding there. We'll, we'll keep an eye on that case. So far, it does not appear to have stopped the community from creating numerous offshoots like pixel punks and doodle punks and many more. Okay, but today the Senjai market has its own supply chain all the way down to custom hardware. Here's a clip from a Wired UK story discussing the core ecosystem around the Senjai hardware. In the West, there's an idea that I can have a company that produces nothing, has a ton of patents, but produces money by suing everyone for rights to those patents. You don't even have inventors, you have lawyers making money off of buying intellectual property and trading it. That's weird, right? It's kind of weird that you produce nothing but make a lot of money. The idea that you can take an idea in a world that's this big and say exactly one person owns the right to it globally, like Apple has the right to the phone with rounded rectangles. They're the only people who can produce that. Really? Like, seriously? This is the world we're gonna live in? Like, we just give people monopolies through the IP system for 20 years for stupid ideas because they were first to file. That made sense back in the day when there were fewer people, less innovators, a less connected world. Now we have like this network of people where like we're empowered to do our things and we can almost trade our creativity. And China's ecosystem is this network ecosystem of an idea for an idea. Like let's let's trade. Now you realize your place in ecosystems, I need other people around me. You can't be a dick to like all the other guys around you just because you have the patent monopoly in this thing. Someday you're gonna be on the bottom side of the chain and you're gonna need other people's help. And so you build networks of collaborations with people by sharing in this open source philosophy. There are companies such as World Peace Industrial, WPI, that spend millions to produce what they call gangban, or public board. 
They develop around 130 gangbans annually in areas ranging from smartphones, tablets, smartwatches, smart homes, industrial controls, and they distribute the designs for free and then make money selling the components for the board. And the acceptance and even the excitement for the concept of Sanjai is a deeply rooted cultural value system where in the West, we place the value on the origin, the first creator of something, where in the East, the value is given to the craft itself. Artists, for instance, often make a name for themselves if they're able to reproduce a famous work of art so well that they're able to fool collectors into thinking it's an original. At that point, both pieces of the work carry the same value because of the craftsmanship. Well, it's identical. Here's a segment from that same Wired UK story on the value system that helps to drive Sanjay. Something is really happening. Companies are realizing the importance of having new ideas and being different. So many companies who were involved in the Shanghai before are now looking at design. They are now looking at how to develop innovation in their own companies. The model that is being developed in Shenzhen can actually be quite threatening in other parts of the world. And it's not uh, surprising that many American companies are now looking at models that are developed in China to see how they can adjust themselves. And in many ways, it's a precursor to the coming economy being enabled by DAOs and Web3. And while Senjai started as this hacker and maker ecosystem, it's now being driven by the connected global economies that we see on Amazon and Walmart.com and direct-to-consumer advertising through Instagram. The same manufacturers that are making all of our iPhones and high-end audio products, they're now also producing their own brands and are able to move faster than the global brands when it comes to innovation. Here's a clip from that same Wired UK story featuring the owner of a product company who manufactures Harman Carmen and JBL audio products and has built an innovative design studio to actually move faster than his customers. We have a lot of opportunity here. I think our focus should be, let's create a quality product. And, and you could be proud and say, this is made in China. So if you can just focus on that new technology to focus on a branding and to focus on a quality, and I think within the next five years, people have different perspective of made in China. There's so much more about this fascinating ecosystem. If you want to dive deeper, Bong Chul Han has a fantastic book titled Sanjai, which walks through the history of Sanjai dating back hundreds of years and how value systems diverged between the East and the West that make the style of collaboration possible and even valued. This may be a blueprint for the future. I mean, a world where makers have more power than the lawyers and the value is not derived from the ownership of an idea, like a rectangular device with round corners, but execution and the innovation of that idea. With DAOs and Web3, a lot of these concepts are already being built into the fabric of what many are calling the future of the web. But what that future becomes is still on all of us to decide. Well, that about wraps up this episode, but fear not. Uh, there's plenty more Rocketship.fm coming soon. Uh, we're going to take a break for the holidays next week, but we'll be back in the new year with more from Season 11, Antitrust, discussing the breakdown of trust, that technology has caused in our society, culture, and government, and what we can do to help fix this. For Mike Belsito, I'm Michael Saka, and this is Rocketship.fm. 
Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network, and if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.